go again. Saturday morning, part two. The new covenant. What is the new covenant? It's revelation. It's power. The accompanying Holy Spirit. Lest I be misunderstood in the first session, it's brought to my attention. The principle of Scripture, we have to allow the Holy Spirit from culture to culture to, to apply a general thing like be holy for I am holy. I have to make sure that our definition of holiness is not culturally defined, but allow the Word of God to define it, allow the Holy Spirit to apply it, and so on. Making that statement, I don't want to be misunderstood that um, some things are permissible. Um, if you ask questions like homosexuality or something, um, is that wrong in every culture or only wrong in some cultures? Well, it's, of course it's wrong in every culture. It's because it's just a general principle. What I'm after when I make that statement is as a lot of our definitions of what is right and what is wrong is not based upon scripture and it's not based upon um, revelation of the Holy Spirit as much as it's based upon culture. But we need to let our culture be defined by the word of God. We need to let our culture be defined by the spirit of God and so on. And just because... You know, I just think of so many examples. Is it wrong for a woman to wear makeup? Is it wrong to wear earrings? And this kind of stuff goes on and on and on. Um, how much of that is just culturally defined rather than biblically defined and scripturally defined? And we need to find the heart of God in the scriptures. We need to find the heart of God in the revelation of the Holy Spirit and allow the Holy Spirit to make the application to where we live in the world. Take the broad principles of the word of God and, and apply them to us. Let's just make sure we understand that. Let's go to the book of Acts. But I'm, I want you to find two scriptures, Acts chapter 2, but I also want you to go to Isaiah 59. And the reason I'm asking you to turn to Isaiah 59 is because Peter, preaching on the day of Pentecost, is going to quote this. Let me read from Acts 59 first. Acts 59, verses 19 to 21. So they shall fear the name of the Lord from the west, and his glory from the rising of the sun. For he shall come like a rushing stream, which the wind of the Lord drives. Are you thinking Acts chapter 2 when I just read that? Isaiah 59, verse 19. He shall come like a rushing stream, which the wind of the Lord drives. A redeemer will come to Zion, to those in Jacob who turn from transgression, declares the Lord. As for me, this is my covenant with them. Here we are. I want you to think Acts chapter 2, the driving force of the wind, and suddenly it was the sound of a mighty rushing wind. Okay, that's Isaiah 59, 19. And then he goes on to say in verse 21 here, here's the covenant. What is the covenant? Is my spirit. There we are. There's the new covenant. What's the new covenant? My spirit that is upon you. My words that I put in your mouth shall not depart out of your mouth or out of the mouth of your offspring or out of the mouth of your children's offspring, says the Lord, from this time forth and forevermore. That's exactly what Peter is quoting. The promises to you, to your children, to your children's children. As many as are far off as the Lord our God shall call. That's his paraphrase of this verse in Isaiah 59, 21. 
He's talking about Pentecost in verse 19. Shall come like a mighty rushing stream which the wind of the Lord drives. And what is the new covenant? It's the coming of the Spirit. It's the coming of the Spirit. Jesus baptized nobody in the Holy Spirit in the time of the four Gospels. But from his ascended position, he is now the baptizer in the Holy Spirit. When Peter is preaching on the day of Pentecost, every sermon has got to have what's the action point, what's the climax, what's the conclusion to which this sermon is driving, what is the result after the, the, that you want to see happen at the end of the preaching. Well, I'm going to ask you the question. When Peter was preaching on the day of Pentecost, what was the result? What was the goal? What did he want people to do? What were they to receive? Holy Spirit. In our preaching today, what do we want people to receive? In the standard evangelical church, what's the goal? Be born again so they can go to heaven when they die. What's the action point in Acts chapter 2? That what Isaiah said, this is the covenant. What's the covenant? My spirit, my spirit, my spirit. What must we do? Repent and be baptized and you shall receive. You see, in my estimation, because to me the gospel is the kingdom of heaven has come. When I'm preaching the gospel, if I'm going to do that, what I want people to do is have an encounter with the power of God. Not just say a prayer and get an eternal life insurance policy. I want them to meet God in power. That's what I'm after. That's my heart. That's the message, the kingdom of heaven. And so when you go through Acts chapter 2, you see that he is just a fulfillment of Isaiah chapter 59, and he makes the point that the whole new covenant is the coming of the Spirit. And to enter into a revelation of who Jesus is is to be baptized in the power of the Holy Spirit. What about the book of Romans? Let's go to Romans chapter 15. Romans chapter 15. Verses 15 to 19, when Paul describes how he goes about preaching. Verse 15 says, But on some points I have written to you very boldly by the way of reminder, because of the grace given me by God. Now, what is the definition of the word grace? The grace given me by God. Keep on reading, verse 16 to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God so that the offering of the Gentiles might be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. What's the grace? It's what gives me the power to be a preacher. It is not just unmerited favor. It's the divine enablement. This grace is given. I have been divinely enabled, divinely empowered to bring the gospel to the Gentiles. Verse 17, in Christ Jesus, then, I have reason to be proud of my work for God. Verse 18, for I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience. How does he do it? By word and deed. Okay? By, in our, our different words, by revelation and by power. That's New Covenant stuff. When it says in word and deed, you're talking about the new covenant of revelation and the new covenant of power. And this is how we are to minister the gospel uh, uh, to other people. And then verse 19, he goes on and he elaborates by the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem all the way around to Illyricum, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. That's New Covenant preaching. That's what it is right then and there. Such powerful, powerful things here.
Uh, let's, there's so much in Romans we could do, but let's just go to Romans chapter 8, verses 13 to 16. It says, For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who were led by the Spirit are the sons of God. You did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. Excuse me, what's the new covenant? It's revelation. It's the Holy Spirit writing his laws internally upon your hearts. In the words of Romans chapter 8, the Spirit of God is bearing witness inwardly to your spirit. You are hearing God talk to you. You are getting the witness of God. You don't know how you know, but you know that you know. You might not be able to explain how you know, but you know. There's just an intuition, an unshakable knowledge you know. The Holy Spirit has birthed witness within your heart and within your spirit. That's new covenant. That's normal. Paul the Apostle says this is normal Christianity. The Spirit of God speaking to you. The Spirit of God touching you. That is just normal New Testament. So don't worry about it. I'm not going to answer it. It's my phone. I don't have to answer it. <laughs> Hallelujah. You know, it's just so important. Let's go to Galatians. I, 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 I love Galatians uh, chapter 3, where, where Paul refers in such a matter-of-fact way uh, to their own conversion. When he talks about their conversion, he talks about in terms of, of, of their activity of the Holy Spirit. When we think about conversions today, are we, do we think about, you know, let's go back to that mission. Let's go back to that crusade that we had. And what's your memories of the crusade? What's your memories of the mission? What is it? And yet, if we, though Paul didn't use that phrase, mission or crusade, in Galatians chapter 3 talks about his his preaching time in the province of Galatia. And look how he, he talks about it. Oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Now, folks, that's the work of the Holy Spirit. How do I try to put that in modern English, what Paul is saying there? He says, my preaching about Christ was so real that before your very eyes, he was hanging there on a cross. The Spirit of God transported you right to the cross. That word of wisdom, that word of knowledge made it so real that it was imprinted upon your consciousness. You were there emotionally, mentally, spiritually. You were there at the cross. That's powerful preaching. You were transported when I was preaching to you. And that, that's power. That is revelation. That is more than just a nice sermon. That's being carried along by the Spirit of God, and you're transported in spirit to witness this. That, that's the power of what he's saying here. I mean, this is powerful preaching here. And he says, let me ask this of you, verse 2. Now, he's talking about their conversion here. And in, in terms of his conversion, he says, did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? He didn't say, did you get saved? He didn't say, did you get eternal life? His whole, his, the language that he uses about their conversion was your reception of the Spirit. And it was something that was visibly demonstrated. Your reception of the Spirit. Did it come by the works of the Lord? Are you so foolish? Having begun in the Spirit, are you going to now be made perfect by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain? Is it all in vain yet? Verse 5. He that supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you, does he do it by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? What kind of a gospel did Paul preach? He says that his gospel came 
with Spirit. And his gospel caused people to respond and receive the Spirit. He doesn't talk about in terms of, of saying a prayer. He doesn't talk about in terms of, uh, like that at all. He talks about their conversion as receiving the Spirit, receiving the Spirit, receiving the Spirit. That's new covenant. Revelation and power. Revelation and power. You see, the book of Galatians has suffered at the hands of the Reformation. When we read the book of Galatians, if, we, if our history begins with the Reformation, this is how we read Galatians. There are two things to be proved. One, nobody is justified by keeping the law. Two, you are justified by faith and faith alone. And the Reformation would bring that out. However, that's not the whole story of Galatians. And the other aspect, because we look at this through the eyes of the Reformation as if the struggle about what's the cost of going to heaven is the issue, we miss the punchline of Galatians. Here's the question that Paul had to deal with that the Reformers didn't deal with. Here's the question. Paul's enemies asked this question. If you do away with the law, if Gentiles do not have to be made subject to the law, then what happens to righteousness? Because these Gentiles with their heathen, pagan backgrounds, with no sense of morality, no sense of the Ten Commandments, no sense of right or wrong, no teaching of the law, if the Gentiles are not subject to that, what happens to righteousness? Because they'll claim to be saved and yet continue to live immoral lives. So how do we get the sense of morality if we don't have to bring them down to the law? What happens to righteousness? And Paul's answer is very, very simple. And this is the third strain in Galatians that the readers of the Reformation don't pick up. And the answer is this. The imparted Holy Spirit radically transforms human life, changes the heart, empowers, gives new desires, and the Holy Spirit will give birth to a real righteousness that the law cannot produce, not even in Jews. That the Holy Spirit creates new righteousness. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace. Walk in the Spirit. Live in the Spirit. This is what produces real righteousness. The Holy Spirit. Now, if that's the case, and that is the case, then I have to argue in our presentation of the gospel, people need to be filled with the Holy Spirit overwhelmingly. They need to be encountered with God, overwhelming experience with the power of God. They need the revelation of God. They need the power of God. And conversions need to be bringing people in to a vital encounter with the Spirit of God because that's what produces righteousness. It's not by the law. It is by faith, but it all comes by the Spirit. That's the punchline of Galatians. But we miss that because we stop short and thinking justification is what it's all about. It's not about justification. It's about the Spirit of God transforming human nature. That's what Galatians is about. Where would I start in the book of Hebrews about the new covenant? I mean, the whole book is about it. So I have to pick and choose. Hebrews chapter 2 is interesting. In verses 1 to 4, again, just see how the gospel was preached to the Hebrew believers. Hebrews chapter 2, 1 to 4. Therefore we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution... How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? Now listen to this. It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard, 
while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. According to that verse, how was the gospel preached? How was it preached? God bearing witness in power and in revelation. The gospel was not just declared, it was demonstrated. It was demonstrated. Very, very important. Go to chapter 6, verses 4 to 6. And I am going to stay away from the controversy in these verses. These are very controversial verses, except to make a point. It's talking about falling away. Hebrews 6, 4, it says, For it is impossible, in the case of those who had once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, shared in the Holy Spirit, tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come, And then they fall away to restore them again to repentance. Now, I'm not here to talk about the yeas and nays of apostasy. But I want you to see that everything they fall from is revelation. It says, if they have once been enlightened, what is that? That's revelation. Tasted the heavenly gift. What's that? That's power. Shared in the Holy Spirit. Obviously, the Holy Spirit tasted the goodness of the word of God. What's that? Revelation. Tasted the powers of the age to come. What's that? Power. Revelation and power. Revelation and power. Revelation and power. In other words, it's just assumed that these believers, when they came to faith, they came into revelation and power. That's the assumption. That is simply the assumption. And to fall away means you're walking away from your experience with the Holy Spirit who brings revelation and power. So, with that thought in mind, what are we doing as a church if we are not emphasizing the work of the Holy Spirit in revelation and in power? What are we doing? Those are the things you fall away from and make backsliders out of people. The writer of Hebrews says it very strongly in chapter 10. Again, another passage I'm not going to make comment on because it's controversial about apostasy again. But in verses 26 to 29 of chapter 10, just the last phrase of verse 29, the version of the Bible I have here, the ESV, puts it this way. You have outraged the spirit of grace. In other words, what has brought us to faith was the presence of the Holy Spirit. To fall away is to outrage the spirit of grace. All that tells me what? It tells me that we need to be people of the spirit. People of the spirit. Let me run now to the New Testament, to Jesus in particular. I'm going to go back to the question I said I would come back to. And that is, why did the Old Covenant fail? What was it missing that led to its failure? What must the New Covenant have to make it better? And what it must have is the accompanying, revelatory, empowering Holy Spirit. That's what it must have. Everything about Jesus, since that was was missing, everything that Jesus came to do was to supply it. All right? Now, I'm going to tell you six things about Jesus here. In the light of that, what was missing was the empowering Holy Spirit. I want to tell you six things about Jesus. The first one is that the reason Jesus came was to baptize people in the Holy Spirit. Okay, 
other people would say the reason Jesus came was to deliver us from our sins. Again, I am going to argue that the forgiveness of sins is the door that leads to the new covenant, and the forgiveness of sins is not the goal in and of by itself. It's part of a bigger story. Sins being forgiven allows the Holy Spirit to come in new covenant power. All right? So I'm not belittling in any way, shape, or form the fact that sins are forgiven, that we're justified, propitiated, sanctified, adopted, washed, all these different metaphors. I'm not belittling that in any way, shape, or form. I just don't want the gospel to be reduced to that. The gospel is the covenant of the Spirit has come. And in each gospel, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all four gospels have John the Baptist introduced Jesus with these words. He's the one that baptizes in the Holy Spirit. John also said, Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. Yes, he takes away the sins of the world so that the sin question being dealt with, he can baptize us in the Holy Spirit. All right? All four Gospels have John the Baptist introduce Jesus as the one who baptizes in the Holy Spirit. John said, I am just preparing for a greater ministry to come after me. The preparation consisted of repentance, and sealing that repentance by water baptism as a sign of washing away the old life and being raised to a new life, that removes the old covenant penalties of punishment and death. But in the new covenant, what happens is the law is going to be revealed in your heart by the ongoing action of the Holy Spirit. The central message is clear. John came to prepare for the greater ministry of one to come after him. Repentance and baptism in water is to lead to the greater aim of being baptized in the Holy Spirit. It is sad for me to see that cessationism has reversed the whole thing. That the goal in cessationist churches is repentance and water baptism so people can go to heaven and they have replaced the baptism of the Holy Spirit with going to heaven when they die. And I am saddened by that because the power has just been taken out of the church in such a position. And the Holy Spirit is now seen as primary in the sense that the Holy Spirit will convict you of sin so you can repent and be baptized, whereas repentance and being baptized should lead you to the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And the cessationists to put the of the Holy Spirit on the other end of the equation. Yes, it takes the Holy Spirit to convict us. It takes the Holy Spirit to bring us to repentance. It takes the Holy Spirit to prepare the heart. But once the Holy Spirit's prepared the heart, he wants to come in powered and dwell it. And we've changed the goal to going to heaven instead of being filled with the Holy Spirit. I'm saddened by that. When Peter was asked by his hearers on the day of Pentecost, what should they do? His first part of the answer was the same as John the Baptist, repent and be baptized, which would then lead on to the fulfillment of what John spoke about. He's going to baptize you in the Holy Spirit. That is the goal. That's Isaiah 59. Is this not the covenant? the Holy Spirit would come. Jesus has come to minister in, in power. So let me put it this way. Um, the grand goal of the birth, the life, the teaching, the ministry, the death, the burial, the resurrection, and the ascension of Jesus is to lead to this climatic event of people being baptized in the Holy Spirit. So we can be filled with revelation and power.
That's the first thing about Jesus. That the stated goal of his ministry is to baptize people in the Holy Spirit. Everything else is preparatory to that great aim. The second thing about Jesus is that he purposely modeled for you and me how to follow God. He purposely modeled an example to you and me of how to follow God. He was involved in discipling other people. He gave them lots of field experience. They were to imitate his words and they were to imitate his deeds. He gave them examples to follow. Jesus modeled baptism as the preparation receiving the Spirit. He submitted to the baptism of John the Baptist. The Holy Spirit comes upon him. He modeled a prayer life. He modeled soaking in and obedience to the scriptures. He modeled submission to the Father, never seeking his own will. He modeled faith. He modeled hearing his Father's voice in order to obey it. He modeled miracle power. And he expected the disciples to carry that same kind of authority. He modeled it. Even though Jesus was God, even though Jesus is God, even though Jesus does things only God can do, he chose to accomplish what he did through the agency of the Holy Spirit. Acts 10.38, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth, the Holy Ghost and with power, who went about doing good healing all that were oppressed of the devil. Jesus chose, though he was God, to use the agency of the Holy Spirit to accomplish everything. He still uses the agency of the Holy Spirit to accomplish everything, and he shares that spirit with you and me as the means of accomplishment. And Jesus modeled for us how it happens. His prayer life needs to be imitated. His dedication and submission to the scriptures needs to be imitated. The Great Commission that we hear about is no different than any previous sendings that he sent them out. He gave power in Luke 9. He gave power in Mark 6. He gave power in Luke chapter 10. Um, the Great Commission is to baptize people, which is preparation for receiving the Holy Spirit. When Jesus sent the disciples out two by two, or the 70 of them, uh, the 12 of them, when he sent them out, he sent them out with power. And the Great Commission is no different. We're to go out in power. So the second thing is this, that Jesus modeled how we walk in the reality of the new covenant spirit. He's our example. His prayer life, his study of the scriptures, his submission to God, that's the model. The third point I'll make about Jesus is that Jesus gave his life and he shed his blood to bring us this covenant. What is the covenant? It's more than life after death. It's the power of God coming. It's the kingdom of God breaking in. Jesus gave us life and he shed his blood to bring us this covenant. Let us not therefore despise the contents of the covenant, seeing the great price that he gave to bring it to us. Let's not reduce it. The cross is the crucial centrality of the gospel message. The death of Jesus is followed by resurrection and ascension with its bestowal of the Holy Spirit. Jesus shed his blood to bring it to us. The fourth point I would make is that his resurrection and his ascension vindicates him before the eyes of the world and it vindicates the new covenant that he has come to bring. Because I'm sure there's a lot of people that looked upon Jesus dying upon the cross and they said that's the place of criminals and so how can God be involved with Jesus 
if he ends up with such a shameful death. Surely the cross is a sign he's not of God. However, Peter preaching on the day of Pentecost makes it plain that God vindicated Jesus no matter what you think about him because of the way in which he died. God declares him to be his son, and the proof that he declares him to be his son is that he has been raised from the dead. And so the raising of Jesus from the dead is God the Father's vindication of who Jesus is, and it is vindication of the message of the kingdom that he brought. Not just a vindication of who he is, but it's a vindication of the message of the kingdom that he brought. All right? And what's that kingdom? It's revelation and it's power and raising Jesus from the dead, it is vindicating both the message and the messenger. That's the fourth thing we want to say. The fifth thing I'd want to say about Jesus just goes on with the first four. And the fifth thing is this. Now that he has ascended, he is now the baptizer, the bestower, of the new covenant Holy Spirit. Now that he is resurrected and ascended, he is the bestower, the baptizer in this new covenant Holy Spirit. Did not Jesus say in the Gospel of John, I've got to go? If I don't go, then nothing's going to change. If I don't go, there's going to be no new spirit coming. If I don't go, there's going to be no empowering of a new covenant. I've got to go. Because I'm going to go. I'll pray the Father. And then the hope and the longing and the desire of the prophets will finally be fulfilled. There Now the problem of sin has been taken care of. I can now baptize lavishly, overflowingly, overwhelmingly. I can now Give people the Holy Spirit. From his ascended position, he can now fulfill the longing of the ages, the revelation and the empowering of God to people. Sixth point. Through this outpoured, lavish outpoured Holy Spirit, Christ now dwells within you. Think about it. I'll never leave you. Never forsake you. Christ in us. The hope of glory. That the Holy Spirit has come to indwell us. I mean, actually take up residence. Folks, we're the temple of the Holy Spirit. Not just filled, but he actually resides within us the temple of the Holy Spirit. We are the envy of every Old Testament saint. How little advantage we take of our envious position. We are the envy of every Old Testament saint. We know God for ourselves dwells within us, walks in us, talks to us, reveals God, enables, transforms, empowers us, leads us, guides us. We're not alone. Wow. This is the power of God. He now dwells within us. Powerful stuff. I'm going to run here. I'm going to try to get this done in the time we've got left. Switch gears here new page in your notes how did Jesus disciple people in the light of everything we have just said how are people going to be discipled what did he do with those 12 that he picked and I'm going to ask the question in the light of that how are we as churches training people for ministry today how are we doing it 
here's my point. I haven't trained anybody for ministry and if I have not taught you to hear God's voice. I haven't trained you for ministry if you don't know how to hear God for yourself and obey him in spite of the testings. I'm not a prophet, but I will prophesy to you. After you hear God, you will be tested. After you hear God, all kinds of circumstances will speak against it. Challenge it. Hearing God, being in ministry, is knowing that you hear God and you've heard God so well that you can stand against the tide that flies against you. That is normal. That's how it happens. That's the way this thing works. You will be tested on hearing God and standing on God's voice to you. You will do it. But in order to take you into ministry, I have to train you to hear God. All right? Mentoring others is a biblical pattern. I'm going to make a distinction between a teacher and a student as opposed to a father and a son. Teacher-student is the Greek mindset of education. Father-son is the Hebrew mindset of education. A lot of things are not learned as much as they are caught. Some things cannot be academically taught. They have to be caught. Therefore, the best learning is going to come through not official institutional learning. It's going to come through relationship. Hear me on this. I'll say it again. Training for ministry is not going to necessarily come through academic institutional learning is going to come from mentoring relationships because ministry is caught as much as it is taught. It's having people who will lay their life down for the sake of others. It's having people who open their hearts and allowing other people into the depths of their being. It's imparting from a father's heart to a son or a daughter. That's what it is. Mentoring is the biblical pattern. However, in Western worlds, formal education has replaced discipleship. Formal education has replaced discipleship. People can go to an academic institution and receive verbal instruction in theology and come out with no experience in charismatic ministry whatsoever. Matter of fact, they might even graduate and never once hear God spoke to them and still graduate. Is training people, in training people for ministry, is the goal academics? prestige or are we missing the mark adopting the wrong methods and have the wrong spirit in which we're pursuing this whole thing theology is necessary you know me well enough bible study is necessary correct reading scriptures the correct reading of scriptures is necessary i appreciate scholarship far more than i appreciate popular christian literature I don't, like read, I don't like reading what's popular. I want to read the scholars because they have got the jots and the tittles of scriptures. I, uh, blessed beyond measure by scholarship. I am, I, my personal life, I am indebted to people who have spent their whole life in the exposition of scriptures. When I read the Gospel of John, if I say, oh, give me a book on the Gospel of John, 
I'll tell you who I read. I read people you've never heard of. I, I read people who have spent 20 years, catch that, 20 years in one book of the Bible. Those are the people I read. I don't read the next common fad on the Gospel of John. I just don't even bother with it. I, I read the people have given decades of their lives to studying the Scripture. Having said that, intellectualism, for its own sake, does nothing. It does nothing. I want people who know the voice of God. Is what I'm after. I could take you to, to persecuted countries. I could take you to pastors in India, where I just was, who have had no access to schools of academic training, but believe you me, they know God. They know him. Never been to a Bible school, but they hear him. They have his voice, and they can follow his leading. And they're far more successful in casting out demons than you and I will ever be. They know God. They hear his voice. Absolutely, they do. They display a powerful faith, often with miracles that we in the West never see. We've got the academics. They have knowledge of God. I'm going to look at three areas of training. Area number one, how do we gain knowledge? Area number two, what's the goal of training? And area number three, how discipleship is to be taught. Number one, how do we gain knowledge? In training people, knowledge. Depends what your definition of knowledge is. Is it information or is it revelation? Is it information or is it hearing God speak? I don't want to hear about God. I want to hear God. There's a big difference, isn't there? In the Garden of Eden, hath God said, in the wilderness... The same temptation came to Jesus, but Jesus refused to misapply or pre-apply God's promises without hearing God first. Jesus did not simply quote scripture and claim it. Rather, he submitted to what he heard. He submitted to what he heard. In the book of Romans, the just live by faith. How does faith come? By hearing and hearing by the word of God. Now, let me paraphrase that. Faith comes by hearing God speak. Faith comes by hearing God speak. You could read the Bible and not hear God speak to you. You could memorize the Bible and not hear God speak to you. It comes by hearing God speak. That's New Covenant type of stuff. First Corinthians, the first three chapters, speak about two ways of knowing. There's two different types of knowing. The Greek city of Corinth, being Greek, they prized themselves in intellectual competition and philosophy and rhetoric. You know, they had the great philosophers. Paul says there's two types of wisdom. There's human wisdom. And there's wisdom that comes from hearing from God. The wisdom of this world with all its scholars and philosophers crucified Christ. The wisdom of this world is divisive, proud, and boastful. It boasts about men. Who is the greater orator? Persuasive, powerful people. But then there is the wisdom that comes from hearing God speak. Knowledge is gained not by academics, knowledge is gained by the witness of the Holy Spirit. There's a difference. You could attend this seminar all day and get lots of knowledge, but if you haven't heard the Holy Spirit in any of this, what good is it? What good is it? 
Wisdom is gained by hearing the Holy Spirit. So if that's the case, do we want to fill people with academic information, even theology, which is important, or do we want people to hear the voice of God? What are we training them in? What are we training them in? So if we develop a school where we're going to uh, test people on their grades and the degrees, a person to go out with straight A's academically and be spiritually poor. A person may falter academically because they might think they're not so clever in their minds and yet powerfully hear God. So who are we going to pass and who's not going to pass? What's our goal here? Academics or hearing God? What's our goal? What did Jesus do? He took unlearned men, unschooled men, Peter and John, but it says they took note of them that they had been with Jesus. These men don't have letters, they complain in the book of Acts. In other words, they got no credentials. There's no PhD. There's no bachelor's degree after their names. How can these people be worth anything? And yet they're the ones with the miracles. So in our training with people, is it academic training we're after, or is it hearing the voice of God that we're after? What are we after? How are we training people? If we are just training people academically, putting courses together, go through the course, now you've studied the book of Acts, now you've studied the book of Revelation, are you qualified to go preach because you've got all the academics? Now, I am not saying academics is wrong. Do not misread me. I love academics myself. I love scholarship. I want what is great. I want to hear what people, their whole life is dedicated. I, I don't want, because there are people who hear the Spirit of God, but they preach nonsense as well. They're actually heretical in some of the stuff because they're, not, they're just not rounded out. They're not full enough. Uh, but, but we need to hear, cause people to hear God. That's what we're after. You know, you can you have great learning, but not know Jesus. You could have great learning, but not know the power of his resurrection. In countries where persecution is harsh, you know where some of those believers believe the greatest seminary is? It's prison time. When they are in prison for their faith, that's, they said, that's where they get their education. They are hearing God, the voice of God. I remember that movie I, I told some people to watch called The Insanity of God. Powerful stuff. I mean, prison time is when you get your education about hearing God. It's powerful, powerful stuff. Hearing the Holy Spirit is not optional <laughs> in those circumstances. In other words, there's a danger of institutional learning that happens separate from revelation. There is a danger. Paul, by nature, was a very learned man in Philippians 3, but he says, I'll put all those credentials aside that I might know him, that I might know the power of his resurrection. It's interesting that Jesus, in Matthew 23, did not allow his followers to use the standard terms for teacher. It's interesting. Because he doesn't want to take away the dependency upon the Holy Spirit. So, how do you gain knowledge, academic or by revelation? The second question, how did Jesus mentor other people into ministry? How did he do it? I've already suggested to you it comes by relationship. Ministry is not taught as much as it is caught. Long-term association. It has to go deeper than the relationship of a professor and a student. It has to be a father-son relationship. Because in a father-son relationship, the father opens up his heart. The depths of, the, of his heart are open to other people. You come in and you feed off his heart. And you catch the spirit in which he does things. When... Joshua was raised up. Joshua did not just attend a three-month correspondence course. 
Joshua spent decades of relationship. Elijah and Elisha was 10 years. Paul and Timothy was lifelong. And yet I like what Paul could say to Timothy at the end of his life in 2 Timothy 3. He says, you've known my manner of life. You've known my spirit. You've known my love. You've known my doctrine. You're with me when I got stoned. You're with me when I hear this. You're with me in all my trials. You've seen how the Lord delivers all. You walked through this whole thing with me. You saw my faith. You saw my discouragements. You saw my trials. You saw my victories. You saw me in prayer. You heard me preach. You caught my heart. And that's how mentoring takes place. You catch the heart of your mentor through long-term association. That's what Jesus did with his 12. It starts out by prayerful selection. He allowed those disciples to be intimately associated with him where they would observe and absorb. Observe and absorb. Observe and absorb. Jesus required strict obedience and loyalty from them, but he freely gave them his heart's compulsion. He freely gave them his motivating compassion. He served his disciples, he even washed their feet. His whole life was sacrificed on their behalf. He sanctified his life for them. By his cause and example, class was always in session. The time came when Jesus actually gave them preaching assignments and empowered them for those assignments. They came back from those assignments, and he went over them with them. They had time to talk about. He says, great, I'm glad the demons were subject to you. Wow, that's a new experience for you. You're thrilled to death. He said there's a spiritual pride there. Be careful of that. Don't rejoice in that. But rejoice that your names are written in the book of life. And so he assessed their, I mean, he, the conversation about their growth and so on was all there. Uh, he reviewed them. He asked questions. He gave them new insights based upon their new experiences. And he constantly stretched their faith by assigning them things that made them stretch more and more and more. How am I going to do it? Well, you saw what I did. Go and do thou likewise. You know, and he gave assignments. And that's what I just did within, in India with those, four, those people that went out with me. I says, I mean, you didn't come all the way to India to hear me preach. You don't have to go, you just come to church to do that. You've come to India for you to preach. I'm going to listen to you preach. And when it's all done, we're having a talk at the end of the day. And you're going to tell me your heart, your emotions, and your feelings, and your experiences, your thrills, your discouragements. I'm going to explore that. And then I said, I'm going to tell you how to, we're going to now teach you how to pray through the day. Everything you just experienced. Now I'm going to teach you how to go and take all the whole thing to God for your own learning's sake. That's what we're going to do. That's what we did. That's what we did. So it's the giving of the heart of the father to the son and the daughter. That's how mentoring takes place. Lastly, what's the, the goal? If I train people for ministry, what's the goal? I said before, Jesus modeled it, and he passed on, but here's the goal. I want you involved in charismatic ministry. I want to see prophecy flow through you. I want to see you lay hands upon people. I will correct you if your prophesying is off the wall. You will get corrected. I will guide you, I will mentor you, I will encourage you. I'm here to answer your questions. I'm here to give you experience. But I want you involved in spirit-filled, charismatic ministry. I want to see you released with the ability to lay hands upon other people. I want to see other people come into the presence of God because of you. I want to see you have insight and words of wisdom and discerning of spirits when you pray for people. I want to see you tackle a blind person. I want to see you believe God for the power and, and be a vessel through whom God may express his power. I want you to minister both in word and in deed. 
I want you to be able to give your testimony with confidence. I want to see you overcome your bashfulness. Oh, I can never do that. Oh, yes, you can. Me stand up and preach? I don't know how to preach. Come on. Yes, you can. I can't testify. Yes, you can. I can never pray for that sick person. Yes, you can. You are the vessel of the Holy Spirit. You can prophesy. You can have words of knowledge, words of wisdom, whatever God deems fit. You can. The goal is to see New Testament, New Covenant, Gospel, Kingdom of Heaven, ministry go and invade this dark, sinful world and displace the powers of darkness. That's what I'm after. That's what I'm after. That is the goal. So how are we going to teach all of this? Well, people say, if you come to me for discipleship, what can be expected? Seminars like this is one of them. You're going to get some ground school. We have to talk. We have to lay out vision. We have to give understanding. We have to do these things. But you also need field experience. You have to go out under somebody's supervision and learn come back, talk about it, and then new assignments that are going to stretch you a little more and more and more, all at the same time, gain more and more of my heart, more of my father's attitude and more of my heart. And I'm going to say it has to be relational because you can't get this from a video. You can't get this from a cassette series. You can't get this from YouTube. You need a person to whom you interact. You're not self-taught by watching the latest video. You need relationship with somebody. You need relationship with somebody who's got a father's heart. You do need ground school. Before I put you up in the airplane at the controls, I hope you've attended ground school first. But the day will come when you get into the airplane with a pilot who at some point and said, okay, you've got the feel of it. You're sitting there, and all you're doing is watching me, but you're catching the feel of it. You're feeling the plane. You're feeling the uptake. You're feeling the down. You're feeling when we turn the curves. You're, getting, you're, getting, you're familiar with all the feelings that go with it. The day will come when I'll put you the controls in your hands, and I'm going to trust that what you've learned from me by being with me will carry on, but I'm right here. And then they'll come here on your own. But it's relationship. Without relationship, you're not going to go far. And relationship is very, very important. Jesus surrounded himself with disciples. Paul the Apostle surrounded himself with people. Very rare do you see Paul on his own. But in reading the book of Acts, he had 20 people walking with him. He had teams of people walking with him. Learning is sometimes in service. Sometimes it's non-formal. Sometimes learning has to be extensive and systematic, exhausting. But learning happens in the reality of life and in the reality of ministry. Learning occurs when ministry occurs. It's observation, imitation in the heart of the person. The Holy Spirit distributes the gifts as he sees fit, but those gifts are polished and learned in the discipleship process. They are learned both through your personal suffering in life and they're learned through your experience of power in ministry. You're to imitate the teacher. Let me finish quickly by these, these points and we're done. What did Jesus come to do? He came to bring the kingdom, and that kingdom displaces the powers of darkness. What did Jesus spend his time doing? Exactly that. Preaching everywhere, healing those who were oppressed of the devil, uh, casting out demons, healing the sick, bringing the power of the kingdom to a lost and a dying world. Three, what did Jesus tell his disciples to do? 
Exactly what he did. Same commission. Number four, what did the disciples actually do when he sent them out? Same thing. Read it in the Gospels, read it in the book of Acts. Fifthly, what does the New Testament expect you to do? Same thing. If we're to do it, then can you understand in the New Testament why you have words like this? Seek. Earnestly desire. Stir up the gifts that are in you. Neglect not the gifts that are in you. So the goal of discipleship is more than being empowered by the Holy Spirit to overcome sin so we can get to heaven. If we're sanctified, that means we're set apart for God's mission. We have repented, we've been baptized, and we've entered into the new covenant. The goal of the new covenant is the speaking, revelatory, empowering Holy Spirit. We live by faith, which means we hear the voice of God and we obey it, even though that faith is tested through disappointment, failure, suffering, and persecution. Nevertheless, we stand because God has spoken. And God rules. Disciples follow Jesus. They do what he did. He modeled it for them. We love God with all our heart and soul. They love their neighbor. You're always praying. You do expect opposition. You disciple other people. That's what it means to be commissioned by Jesus. And that's what we do. Amen.